So our next speaker is Dr. Markovic. He is a professor of medicine, oncology, and an associate professor of immunology at the Mayo Medical School. He is also recognized with distinction as the Charles F. Mathy Professor of Melanoma Research at Mayo Clinic. Dr. Markovic serves as the chair of the Melanoma Study Group of the Mayo Clinic, as well as the chair of the Melanoma Working Group of the North Central Cancer Treatment Group. Dr. Markovic's primary academic interest focuses on developmental therapeutics for advanced melanoma with a special emphasis on innovative treatment combinations incorporating conventional cytotoxic, cytotoxic agents, immunomodulators, inhib inhibitors of angiogenesis, and small molecules. Some of Dr. Markovic's work is already accepted as standard practice in the management of advanced melanoma, and more is on the way. It's a real pleasure that we have him and help me welcome him now. Thank you. Well, good morning, everyone, and thank you for allowing me to share uh, some time with you this morning. Uh, what I'll try to do is, in the, la in the next 40 minutes, uh, sort of give you a brief overview of, of a topic near and dear to my heart, which is malignant melanoma. And I'm a medical oncologist who actually uh, has an immunology lab, so a lot of the, the talk today will, will have to deal with T cells and interesting things. I've made my talk particularly short so that we'll have an opportunity to talk about things. Uh, melanoma has been in the news recently. And I think people may have some questions. So uh, our national meeting of the American Society of Clinical Oncology just finished on Monday. And there's been a lot uh, to talk about melanoma. So without further ado, uh, what I'll try to do is really update you kind of on the recent clinical advances and sort of uh, give you a bit of a sense as to developing efforts in this disease so that kind of you have a flavor as to what happens when melanoma uh, leaves the dermatologist's office and the patients are referred for advanced disease. Uh, what I'll try to talk about is, again, sort of to encapsulate the spectrum of this disease, is talk a little bit about uh, risk factors, uh, some of the diagnostic tools, especially Melafine. Uh, whoops, sorry about that. And uh, take you through prognosis. There's a new American Joint Commission on Cancer guideline for the staging of melanoma. Uh, talk about therapy, and my favorite topic is sort of the, the near future developments where we can have a bit of a conversation uh, as to uh, what's going on and how we try to improve life with this disease, and finally summarize. So I think uh, one, uh, every parent in this country was breathing a sigh of relief when USA Today published this. You know, I know uh, my four-year-old daughter in preschool was asking me about tanning beds, and I said, well, honey, that's not going to happen. Uh, and uh, this is uh, a, a group out of Brown published to what I think all of us, uh, us in, in oncology, were very relieved to see finally academic proof and clinical evidence that tanning beds do indeed cause, are, are indeed associated uh, with uh, the increased incidence of melanoma. I think, I'm not sure much of this, uh, you know, I think if the title said uh, tanning beds increase wrinkles, I think the, the impact on the population would have been much greater. Uh, but at least this is a move in the right direction uh, for, for this. And believe me, patients that come and see me in, in our Department of Oncology have no doubt 
that this, this is a true statement. But for those of you that may have missed this, uh, I think finally the, uh, the world at large has moved with the Academy of Dermatology and the American Society of Clinical Oncology, suggesting that uh, exposure to UV radiation, concentrated exposure, is not really a smart thing to do. Uh, no, are there safe tanning uh, machines? Well, you know, I think there's always this uh, for, for patients. I, I just couldn't resist. But of course, as all of you know, this is infrared radiation, not ultraviolet. So that would not be, you know, this, this thing killed with the oncology audience. You guys are just not, not doing very well today. All right. And, you know, for the politically inclined, this is sort of an oncologist's view of a teabagging convention, but I know. Sorry, guys. It's, it's too early in the morning. Never mind. All right. So anyway, diagnosis. Uh, <clears throat> this, is, this is really more in the realm of, uh, of, of your practice. You know, I, I don't usually diagnose melanomas. Uh, even though every time I walk in the mall in Rochester, Minnesota, everybody that sees me wants me to look at a lesion on their skin. I said, you know, go see your dermatologist. Uh, but basically, I think, you know, primary care providers are focused on the ABCDs and obviously E's of, of melanoma, which I won't go into. But one of the interesting things that has, uh, I sit on an FDA panel that deals with melanoma and all sorts of things. Uh, and something that came before us last year was this, uh, the Melafine instrument that uh, some of you may have heard about. It was, uh, its initial application for FDA approval last year was denied, asking for more data. It's a basically fancy multi-wavelength uh, dermatoscope that looks at primary skin lesions in the hope of assisting uh, the diagnosis of melanoma. <clears throat> you know, I think my personal biases, I'm sure this will be approved because I think it helps with the diagnosis. I think how much this will be used uh, will be dependent on reimbursement for this, as most things unfortunately are these days. Uh, but I, I, I still believe that the only way to make a diagnosis of melanoma is to have the pathologist tell you that it is a melanoma. And I would hope that none of you will be deterred in biopsying these lesions because it is an important diagnosis to make. Uh, I am too busy. We are too busy. That The weights are extraordinary. Melanoma incidence has increased. I don't want to deal with metastatic melanoma too often. So please don't, uh, uh, don't be uh, disincentivized by uh, little gadgets like this. Biopsy is still key. The prognosis of melanoma, I won't belabor this point. You know, Breslau depth is what, what, what runs the show in this, in this disease, and there's a clear association of Breslau depth and clinical outcomes just on this issue alone. The American Joint Commission on Cancer originally accepted Breslau depth and Clark's level to a certain degree ulceration and intransit metastasis as very significant predictors in outcome in melanoma. And remember, the American Joint Commission is largely made of people that practice in advanced diseases. So this is, these are sort of retrospectively looking at things that lead to advanced disease. Uh, the most recent iteration of uh, the Joint Commission uh, just published uh, uh, late last year was the introduction of the mitotic rate as a prognostic indicator in this disease. Uh, here's just, a, you know, I had to show some histology, clearly. I'm an oncologist, so somebody had to point these out to me. But this is sort of mitosis in a malignant melanoma. Uh, there's been a lot of uh, mitotic index, or is nothing new in melanoma. This has been known as a pr uh, prognostic indicator for some time. Dr. Barnhill, who's one of the uh, premier dermatopathologists in, the, in, in North America, has advocated for this for many years. And clearly, when mitotic rate was excluded, 
Then ulceration became an independent prognostic indicator, which is something interesting, as in the last classification system, uh, the mitotic index was not used, only to be entered uh, this year. And just more data to basically uh, prove the point that this is a relevant uh, uh, biomarker of predictive outcome. Uh, in multivariate analysis, you can see, based on number of mitoses alone, uh, you can have changes in overall survival uh, from, you know, everybody lives 10 years versus half of the patients die. Apologies for the clicker here. Uh, and again, as currently, the, this is the 2003 uh, suggestion, the recommendation, and in 2009, the AJCC criteria, mitotic rate, is in, in, included. What this basically means in a practical sense, folks, is patients that have a 0.75 or greater melanoma and you have a mitotic index of anything above zero, I would call in a surgeon for a sentinel lymph node biopsy. It is just, it's not worth playing the, the dice in this one. Uh, these are the survival curves that, this is uh, both from the 2003 and the 2009 American Joint Commission uh, database. Uh, bottom line is people with advanced melanoma don't live long. Stage two, stage three, stage four, very few people survive 10 years with metastatic disease. And this is where people like me invest most of their time uh, in trying to fix. Uh, what's the therapy of this disease? Just a, a kind of a brief uh, overview of stage, its therapy is stage dependent. Uh, stage one, stage two, stage three, and stage four. Stage one and two is disease limited to the skin. Stage three is metastatic disease to regional lymph nodes. And stage four is, unfortunately, to this day, experimental therapy. And at the end, we'll talk a little bit more about that point. So stage one disease, these are usually melanomas uh, that are very superficial, less than two millimeters in invasion. Surgery is curative. Thank you very much. I think, as with most malignancies, you guys diagnosed early, surgery is curative of cancer, hence the screening and all, all the propaganda against uh, sort of exposure to risk factors, risk factors that cause this disease. Probably today, the only thing that will curb the tide of new death of melanoma is prevention. Uh, usually, uh, the margins are relevant. Uh, the deep margin, there are no guidelines, which is sort of an oddity in our field. And really, uh, because of the high efficacy of surgical resection in therapy, uh, no additional therapy is required. Stage two disease, these are deeper melanomas, but still limited to the skin, not invade, not that the melanoma itself has not acquired a phenotype to beat the immune system at the skin and metastasize to regional nodes. Surgery, again, uh, can be curative, uh, not as much as stage one. Adjuvant therapy has been sporadically been used, uh, and most recently, uh, on Friday of last week, the uh, European uh, Oncologic Society, uh, DRTC, their melanoma group, presented data suggesting that a granulocyte, uh, that a ganglicide vaccine used for stage two melanoma in the adjuvant setting in fact produced more death in the patients that were treated on the vaccine than not. Uh, again, goes to show you randomized clinical trials are the only way, way that we learn something, but it's interesting that uh, this has been a segment of melanoma in the stage two disease where there's been a big push to use va cancer vaccines to prevent 
uh, further disease progression and recurrence. And here we are, one of the largest studies of adjuvant vaccine therapy shows that if you took the vaccine, you tended to live less. Uh, not something that we wanted to achieve. Stage three melanoma, this is where things get complicated. This is now the realm of the metastatic disease and regional lymph nodes. Uh, it used to be that prior to the discovery of sentinel lymph node biopsies, patients with melanomas deeper than one and for sure deeper than two millimeters underwent complete nodal dissection of the regional lymph node basin. Uh, there have been a number of studies in the 80s that showed that that is an over-aggressive surgical procedure. And Dr. Don Morton at the John Wayne Cancer Center in Orange County in California started asking questions as to how could we uh, sort of decrease the morbidity of this procedure, which appeared overly unnecessary. Again, you know, the stigma of having malignant melanoma, which, is a, in, it, which in its metastatic phase is a lethal condition, uh, really drove uh, aggressive surgical therapy that may have been uh, overkill to a certain extent. So sentinel lymph node biopsies were introduced in the practice of malignant melanoma about a decade ago and are now commonplace in the United States and most of, most of the world. Uh, but the, and what this procedure has done is allowed us to sample the lymph node where the melanoma drains without necessarily sort of in block resecting the, the entire region. This has done two things. One, morbidity has been decreased for stage three disease, but two, the number of stage three patients has increased because we're now able to pick up much smaller enclaves of melanoma metastasis in regional lymph nodes, which were not seen before. Most pathology labs will do near bread loafing of the sentinel node, looking for even as little as one malignant melanocyte in the node to classify the stage three disease. Therapy here has, has not been limited to surgery. About two, half to two, two-thirds of the patients will, can potentially have a recurrence of this disease depending on the extent of nodal involvement. Uh, and unfortunately, their long-term survival is less than 50% in this category as a whole. Therefore, adjuvant therapy of some kind has been uh, advocated and people have studied many, many different things. The Food and Drug Administration has approved in the late uh, 80s and early 90s interferon alpha. It is a recombinant uh, molecule that emulates a hormone of the immune system, uh, which was initially described in 1958. Uh, GMCSF is a granulocyte macrophage colony stimulating factor that I'll again, which was um, again used in the more advanced stage three melanomas, patients that have multiple lymph nodes. Uh, this, the data on this was just presented at ASCO last week, and of course, cancer vaccines. Uh, now, you know, I'm sure that a lot of the patients that you send on after a diagnosis of a deep melanoma is made and nodes are found, many patients in the United States are exposed to alpha interferon. Uh, I think I, when I was starting my career, I actually got a doctorate in interferon biology because I thought this was important. Uh, and in mice, this drug works wonders. So if anybody has a mouse that has a melanoma, I am your guy. Uh, but, you know, if you're a human, uh, things are not as, not, not as good, unfortunately. Uh, these are Kaplan-Meier curves of uh, the four Eastern Cooperative Oncology Group trials that were done that argued the approval of alpha interferon for the adjuvant treatment of stage 3 melanoma. Uh, we all agree that there is a progression or relapse-free survival advantage in the top left, panel A, it was the original trial that was done on this. 
Uh, unfortunately, overall survival is really not affected. I think uh, that is the uh, sort of the uh, the message that I, I think most of us, uh, the most of us agree on is that even though there is a delay in tumor recurrence with alpha interferon, overall, overall survival, if it is affected, it's not very meaningfully affected uh, and has not been able to be detected in the many clinical trials that have been done so far. Now, when you think of what interferon does, it basically is given for one year uh, and patients essentially have a bad case of the flu for 12 months. Uh, this has been associated every possible organ system in the body can be affected as a toxicity of this agent, uh, both uh, liver, bone marrow, kidneys. We've seen the whole spectrum. Over the last 10 years, we have significantly decreased our utilization of this agent because, again, of the lack of survival benefit. And we have entered many, many novel treatments in this patient category that would be less toxic and, and have a better clinical outcome. One candidate that uh, was uh, touted as a very potential uh, solution to the interferon dilemma has been uh, granulocyte uh, macrophage colony stimulating factor, GMCSF, which was the topic of the E4697 trial done by, by ECOG. The study was just reported, and these are the slides from uh, David Lawson, who is the principal investigator in that study. It was a large trial that randomized patients with uh, stage 3 and stage 4, so metastatic resected disease as well as regionally nodal positive disease that were resected. Uh, this was the, 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 the study and its groups. Uh, patients that were HLA-A2 positive were randomized to GMCSF alone, placebo versus peptides, or, which were used for the immunization in the HLA-2 positive patient population, and patients that were HLA-A2 negative only got GMCSF versus placebo. It was a large study. It was a placebo-controlled trial, which you can imagine was hard to do in the context of resected metastatic melanoma. Uh, at our institution and our affiliates, you know, we see probably 10% of advanced melanoma in the United States. Uh, we were only able to put about a tenth of our practice-eligible patients on this study because of the placebo arm. Uh, you know, it was, we were forced to do that by, by the Food and Drug Administration, but I, I think I still have a difficult time with that. Uh, the disease-free survival on the GMCSF arm versus the placebo did not really uh, show a significant difference, as you can see on this, uh, this curve. These are Kaplan-Meier curves showing essentially overlap for the entire cohort. Uh, what was interesting, also the overall survival did not show a difference, even though this is a preliminary report of the data. The data will mature in 2014, so we have a few more years to see what's going to happen, but uh, odds are that this is, uh, as, a, as a cohort, this group did not benefit from receiving GMCSF. Stage 3 melanoma certainly didn't, uh, didn't appear to do it because the lines were virtually overlapping, but what's interesting is in the resected metastatic disease. Now, how, what is this? This would be patients that have pulmonary metastasis that we would take to surgery and resect. Patients that would have partial hepatectomies for metastatic disease. Uh, these would be the types of people that would be on this trial. And there it seems to be uh, some, some benefit, even though uh, statistical significance is not overwhelming. But I think the story on adjuvant GMCSF uh, is still evolving. Uh, this study took uh, nine years to accrue. 
We've learned a lot more about this agent and this family of agents in that time. We now know what we need to change in the body for this to be effective, uh, so there may be more, more coming. But for right now, I don't think adjuvant GMCSF therapy is a reasonable option for patients with resected stage 3 melanoma, but for resected stage 4, I think one should discuss this. And I would refer you to the proceedings of the American Society of Clinical Oncology meeting where this, is, uh, presented, where this was just presented. So what do we do for stage 3? Well, you know, I told you about Leukine or GMCSF. Leukine is its trade name. Uh, ipilimumab has been getting a lot of press, no definitive evidence that it helps in this disease. Uh, cancer vaccines, uh, this is something that uh, we and others are doing a lot, a lot of things in right now. Um, we've, we're getting better at cancer vaccines, but we're not there yet by, by a long shot. And the biggest obstacle there is trying not to induce tolerance, but actually active immunity. And as of two years ago, we were able to dis distinguish the two phenomena in humans, and hopefully that will accelerate our development of effective vaccines. Because as I'm working on the cancer vaccines, I'm also working, uh, part of our lab is working on a breast cancer vaccine. So you can imagine we, we need a solution here for malignant diseases that will come this way. Uh, and some of you may know uh, the first effective cancer vaccine just got approved about two, two to two and a half months ago, which is the prostate cancer vaccine. Uh, it's a dendritic cell vaccine. It's called Provenge. And for those of you that are not aware of this, it's a, kind of an interesting, uh, interesting phenomenon that's sweeping the nation, I would say. But cancer vaccines have a future. Angiogenesis inhibitors, melanoma is a cancer that needs a lot of blood. We're using this to treat advanced disease. I think uh, we have a trial. Um, actually, several groups around the world have trials using these in the resected setting, and of course, chemotherapy, uh, which has failed in the past. But I'll, what, what I'll talk to you about stage four disease hopefully will give you some encouragement that there may be a future for chemotherapy here as well. Uh, if you think things were complicated for resected nodal or stage three melanoma, this is where in stage four disease, this is the metastatic condition. This is where uh, one person every hour dies of this disease in the United States alone. This is a problem. This is why melanoma has such a bad rap, and this is why people like me spend a lot of hours and times and investment in trying to stop this. Uh, William Osler, uh, who is the father of modern medicine, referred to melanoma as the cancer that gives cancer a bad name. This is the most resistant, most malignant, most lethal malignancy in nature today. So. To reiterate that most malignant, most lethal disease that today can only be stopped by early detection and resection. So you guys, you've got your work cut out for you. Because by the time they come to me, uh, what I can offer is a lot of experiments, but nothing very solid. But if it can come out with a little biopsy, believe me, we'd all be better. Anyway, stage four disease. Two approved drugs, neither one very effective, or for that matter, very much used. The carbazine, approved in the late 1970s by my predecessor who led the melanoma program at Mayo in the 70s and 80s, and interleukin-2, an agent that can only really be given in a fraction of patients. The, guy has, the drug has to be given in an intensive care unit because of profound hypotension and resulting capillary leak syndrome that requires intubation. So this is a very toxic treatment uh, that, that can be given. And it's claimed to fame that it produces durable remissions in 5% of patients. In melanoma, unfortunately, no matter what you do, 1 in 20 patients are going to do okay. 
So I, I probably wouldn't treat 95% of them with IL-2 just to attain that. First line of therapy, despite two approved agents by the Food and Drug Administration, remains experimental. And well, I'll go through some through these for you because I think it used to be the us melanoma docs, we'd come and talk to our dermatology colleagues and it would be a very depressing talk. And I could probably summarize, well, you know, just don't get melanoma, never come and see me, and you'll be just fine. Uh, but there's more to this. So let me tell you a little bit what has actually positively happened, how we have moved off the line, off the starting line in this. Uh, about a, 10 years ago, biochemotherapy was, was very much in vogue. And I think this, this sort of expresses uh, the, uh, you know, the mindset of us oncologists. You know, if one drug doesn't work, if two drugs don't work, and three drugs don't work, maybe five drugs will work. So if we have like 1% benefit from each of these five, maybe that's 5%. Well, you know, again, if what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, that's what we medical oncologists swear to when we get to practice. Here it is, uh, biochemotherapy versus chemotherapy, and this is literally the kitchen sink regimen versus an ineffective regimen, and they live, patients lived about as long as the same amount. Uh, in five years ago, uh, serafinib got introduced. This is our first foray into targeted therapy. I don't know if you guys uh, paid much attention to this. This was touted as the cure for melanoma. At that time, uh, we found that carboplatin and paclitaxel worked just, uh, just as badly as everything else, but with, with less toxicity. Uh, serafinib came in. This was the BRAF antagonist of yesteryear. Uh, wonderful phase one data, uh, big announcements at our national meeting, uh, massive clinical trials, two of them done only to show no difference or survival over conventional chemotherapy. Taxyl carboplatin is kind of like, you know, like uh, what would be a, it's like using a moisturizer in dermatology. Taxyl and carbo are chemotherapeutic agents are used in oncology. You name a, name a cancer, this combination does something for it. So in melanoma, it also did something. Uh, the previous regimen, overall survival was seven months. Here we are at 10 and a half months. Taxocarbo, uh, we, we were basically not pioneering this, but we sort of were desperate enough to try it in melanoma. And this has become now a, stand, a community standard for, for the population. But it, it does offer some benefit. Serafinib in this combination didn't work. Uh, we tried adding an angiogenesis inhibitor to the combination of taxol and carboplatin, and I'm limiting my uh, presentation of our own work just so I can give you a, an overview of what's been done in the world. Uh, bevacizumab, many of you know this is the anti-VEGF antibody, which eight year, seven years ago was the cure of cancer, of all cancer. You know, uh, I remember uh, somebody interviewed me and said, you know, well, will you be going to work tomorrow? you know, to, to see cancer patients. I said, well, you know, I don't know, my kids are still young, but I, I think I'll still be able to pay for their college education. But bottom line is, bevacizumab didn't cure all of cancer, but what it did is it moved the line on melanoma therapy. Uh, we did this thing in 2004, it was a phase two clinical trial, single arm study, and you can see in that very small trial, uh, Taxol and carboplatin gave us a 10 month survival, here we moved to 12 months overall survival. And, you know, 12 months may not sound much, 
but untreated patients with advanced melanoma die in six months. So this was a doubling of their expected survival, uh, and these are median values. We've actually had p uh, patients in long-term uh, survival with this, uh, and I'm, I'm very happy to, uh, to say that it seems to be practical. The, the regimen is easy to give and uh, practical to use in an oncology setting. Uh, the company that makes uh, Avastin did their own randomized study uh, and again replicated our original data. Overall survival uh, is significantly better in the, in the treatment arm where when they did taxyl carboavastin or bevacizumab versus taxyl and carboplatin. Uh, and again, their survival came at about a year. Again, you guys, we're not talking about cures. We're not, cure is only possible when a melanoma patient knocks on your door. Cure is impossible when they come to see me. And, and I, I'm trying, but I'm not there yet. But I just want to show you that the progression-free survival is essentially about six months. Basically, we can keep patients from their tumors exploding for about half a year, after which they start growing and they ultimately succumb. So a year right now, I think, is where it's the 12-month margin where, where we are with melanoma therapy, which is better than before. Uh, this is a uh, paper that swept our national meeting last week. It's the, uh, it was a publication by Bristol-Myers Squibb. It was an industry-funded trial that took, that took a drug called ipilimumab, which has been used in a variety of malignancies and in cancer, uh, basically, and in melanoma. Uh, and what happened was they uh, did a, a phase three clinical trial that was published in the New England Journal and presented as a plenary session at our national meeting. Uh, this agent is an inhibitor of CTLA-4. Uh, this is a T-cell molecule that was discovered 15 years ago. And what it is, it's the, uh, shut, it's the first molecule that's triggered in the shutdown sequence of an activated T-cell. So the way to think about it is a T-cell moseys right along, sees cancer, cancer uh, it's activated and then the tumor turns down the, the T-cell that's recognizing the malignancy. And the idea here was if we can only block the ability of the T-cell to be turned off by the tumor, maybe that T-cell can then kill the tumor. This is similar to what interleukin-2 does, but IL-2 activates everything. And in the sort of the nuclear explosion that happens in the body when all the T-cells are activated, the body instantaneously shuts down the immune response. So here the thought was, well, maybe if we didn't sort of just blast everything and hope that in, in that kind of the squirt of activity melanoma is killed, maybe we can keep the T cells from being inactivated and sort of work a little bit better. So the idea is to be a little bit more specific uh, to the T cells that are relevant to the cancer. You know, everything works great in mice. Uh, like I said, Jim Allison from Memorial Sloan Kettering uh, did the pioneering work on this. Uh, and the trial that was published uh, was a randomized phase three clinical trial uh, using ipilimumab with a peptide vaccine. And so uh, what I did is uh, 607 patients. This is important. I, this will be important for you guys to know about. It was just in the current New England Journal. Uh, this is an article. Basically, patients got either ipilimumab or GP100, which is in the red font. It was a three-to-one-to-one randomization of the 676 patients. Uh, in the blue, patients got ipilimumab alone, which means just the antibody that turns on immunity. And in green, 
was a peptide vaccine. Now, for, uh, for 10 years, we've known that these vaccines don't do anything. And I actually published, uh, we published in 2000, I think, four, where we were mortified to learn that the peptide vaccines, in fact, induced tolerance in the patients that we were treating. So not, not, we were not only not inducing an active immune response, whatever little immune response these patients had, we were turning it off with this vaccine. That was the last time we put a patient on a peptide vaccine trial that had advanced melanoma. This study took some time to accrue, and the data was, is as follows. I, you know, I think this is one of those trials where the, uh, the number of patients is only balanced by the number of authors, and that's not all the authors. Uh, but essentially what the data shows is that the two ipilimumab arms, both with or without the vaccine, had a 10-month overall survival relative to the control arm, which showed a 6.4-month survival. The problem with this study is, and I can tell you right now, is that even though I am delighted that we have hopefully another agent that moves us off of the seven-month baseline of survival, is that the control arm here is, is an unknown. You know, I think it's, the study unfortunately doesn't compare to something that most of us today in practice would consider as a relevant standard of care. Uh, and that standard of care produces a 10.1 months average survival. So how to interpret this data in the context of what we know today about melanoma is hard. I'm just very pleased that there is yet another tool in the toolbox for us to use. And the answer to all of this is going to be some form of combination therapy. But uh, please don't be swayed by popular press and those that just read headlines. This is not the cure of melanoma. I wish it were that way we oncologists can claim we've done something, but not, not there yet. So what do we do? Well, stage one and two surgery is key. And again, this is where, this is where screening comes in. This is where don't go, in, don't go to the tanning bed comes in. This is where, you know, I scream to little kids that, that burn at the, our pool. You know, early diagnosis, prevention is key. Stage three melanoma. We need to do something more medically. This is, not, this is not surgically cured because the tumor has acquired a phenotype to beat the immunologic defenses of the body. It knows how to go through the skin to the nodes and from there and beyond. I've got about three postdocs in the lab and a couple of surgeons that are working on trying to uh, come up with clever ways to do this by understanding the biology of the evolution of the metastatic process. And hopefully we will be, we will be better there in, in the next few years. And stage four disease, I think there's some improvement. Thankfully, for the first time in 50 years of systemic therapy of cancer, we have some movement in this field. And some of those movements are, let me just go back one, is basically ipilimumab, I think, has some activity, the magnitude of which is yet on, to my, you know, to my reasonable assessment of this, yet unknown. There is chemotherapy that works sort of marginally in this whole thing, but does offer something better than what we had in the 70s. And then there's a new agent on the horizon, which is another RAF kinase inhibitor uh, called, referred to as PLX4023. Uh, it's a Plexicon agent that had a lot. There was a big write-up on this in February in the, in the New York Times. Uh, if you guys caught that, it was a five-day article speaking about the new agent. But again, there's movement in our field in advanced disease. So what are the upcoming new things? Well, melanoma and pregnancy. 
we've recently published uh, a manuscript where we, we tried to understand why is it that a tumor can be so resistant to everything we throw at it. And the question that we posed was, you know, is there a body system that is so vastly resistant and so incredibly capable to handle environment that the melanoma could possibly mimic? Uh, we looked at a, a number of systems. Uh, this is a kind of a systems medicine approach. Uh, and when we asked the question of the 87 uh, known mechanisms that the tumor uses to evade immunity, is there an organ in the body that can do the same thing in an organized fashion? And we were uh, horrified to, to learn that the, the melanoma, that the malignant melanoma utilizes essentially the exact same defense mechanisms that the placenta does to allow a fetus to grow during pregnancy. So there is a very interesting association between a couple of random mutations happening in melanoma and the triggering of what basically is a placentation of the malignant tumor. Uh, we'll see how this gets received uh, as the follow-up paper and this gets published. But if this is true, this will provide us a systematic context in understanding uh, malignant evasion of immunity as well as resilience. Uh, the natural history of the anti-tumor immune response uh, is, is something that is, is very much uh, an a, a active topic of investigation right now. The, the, the issue is what do we modulate and how do we, mod and what do we, uh, and how do we modulate and when do we modulate. Uh, some of you may know that immunity is not a static process, it is a dynamic process that changes from day to day and there are certainly times when uh, modulation is effective and times when it is not. Uh, there's a, a, several groups working on this and we're working with some colleagues across the globe trying to answer this question. Uh, what we're trying to also do is a response-adjusted systemic therapy for stage 4 melanoma. Basically, uh, learn from the pediatric oncologists and is uh, to basically stagger therapy. Not all treatment should be given the same way if we understood how it worked. Uh, we have several clinical trials that are coming up very interesting uh, when we take an approach of treat with one thing, assess response, see how the tumor has changed as a result of that treatment, then followed by another. Most chemotherapeutic, chemotherapeutic agents, you guys, are carcinogens themselves. So it stands to reason that the tumor is being changed by a carcinogen. You're treating cancer with a cancer-promoting agent. You know, I, I know we're, you know, in this day and age of, you know, uh, medical, med, medic, medical reform, uh, we shouldn't be looking for business, but, I mean, that kind of sounds a little ridiculous. Anyway. Uh, and ultimately, new ba uh, the BRAF uh, targets, uh, keep your eye on this. Uh, RAF kinases are very important. Uh, uh, enzymes in the natural history of melanoma and other sort of bad, bad malignancies like pancreatic cancer. Uh, there is an enormous effort afoot in the pharmaceutical industry to target this. Uh, there have been at least a half dozen agents that do this well. Uh, they are currently in phase one and phase two uh, clinical trials across the United States. And of course, finally, ipilimumab. Uh, the significance of which, I don't know what, what it is today, but I think I'm happy that it, something is, again, coming down the pike. So uh, with that very uh, pressured speech and trying to share with you a, you know, five decades of melanoma research, uh, I thank you for your time.
Yes, ma'am. Hi, I have two questions. Um, one is, recently we had heard that there was a change in the staging of melanoma. Is that so in the last year or so, or, or was that just not? No, yeah, I mean, that, that was the, the, I think is the ninth American Joint Commission statement in the changing of the melanoma stage. And that just happened in December, January. Okay. So Would you that's, review that, like which, what it is now, or that? I mean, you kind of with what you went through. That's basically where the staging is now. That's exactly okay. right. So the staging, basically, the two things to remember: stage three melanoma now becomes even if a singular lymph node is a singular cell is found in a node, okay. so that will basically trigger a lymphadenectomy. And probably the most important thing is the mitotic rate. The mitotic rate is now part of the staging system, and it's, it's a bad prognostic indicator, okay. whereas the just one prior from 03, it wasn't there. Okay. And then also, um, in recently in the literature, about the CoQ10 enzyme, um, what are your thoughts or comments on that with decreasing the metastatic melanoma? You know, it's kind of a double-edged sword. And I think this, it's, coenzyme Q, uh, the actual biology data on this is really not there. You know, sort of the, 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 the science behind it is not there. It's more, mostly observational data. Uh, the problem with antioxidants in melanoma is sort of a double-edged sword. I think you want to prevent oxygen radicals from being produced uh, in the genesis of the tumor, but then immunologic killing of the tumor is oxygen radical-based. So it's, you know, when do you start coenzyme Q? It's a preventative measure, but if you have mutated cells that are already there, okay. you really ought not to try to prevent the ability of the body to get rid of them. Okay. In, in absence of actual physio physiology and data on how this you know, shifts the levers of immunosurveillance and immune tolerance, it's hard for me to really make any kind of you know, recommendation. All I basically tell my patients is you know, be a smart consumer. You know, my, my wife's a cardiologist. She, she takes it every day, so I think it must be good. So. Okay. Yes, ma'am. What is your current practice with ocular melanoma and what's on the horizon? Excellent question. I think, uh, you know, boy, I didn't realize you guys saw ocular melanomas. Man, you must be busy in your practice. But uh, uh, I think uh, ocular melanomas are interesting. Uh, we have uh, at Mayo, for, for some reason, a concentration of people that do, do ocular melanoma. Uh, I think. Right now, enucleation and brachytherapy are basically the two ways to deal with primary ocular melanomas. And I think depending on sort of the, ana the anatomy and the size of the tumor, you know, we, we won't hesitate to remove the eye. Uh, the important thing to know about ocular melanoma is unlike cutaneous or most versions of cutaneous melanomas, Ocular melanomas tend to recur very late in the disease process. So even though 90% of the recurrence rates in your garden variety melanomas happen in the first five years, and then you kind of say, congratulations, you've graduated, go home, most of our ocular patients remain in follow-up forever. Actually, their, mo their greatest risk of recurrence is five to 10 years after the recession. Something important to know, also a normal liver function test, as, as you know, ocular melanomas primarily go to the liver, uh, does not get you out of it. I think what we've done uh, is basically we do PET scans on everybody. I know, you know it's expensive, it's crazy, but you know, we're Mayo Clinic, everybody th says we're expensive and crazy, so might as well. Anyway, question. That's a great lead into my question. Um, what are your thoughts and recommendations on the value of labs and chest x-rays in screening melanoma patients? Well, here, I'll give you what, what my practice is. Uh, we've published this in uh, Mayo Clinic Proceedings, which is our uh, journal that, that we publish. 
about a year and a half or two years ago. And, you know, I've gotten about as much hate mail as much I've gotten support for what we've said. Uh, we find in our practice, and this was either published or it's about to be published, that PET imaging, which is the first, uh, uh, the, the first modality, uh, the first disease for which PET imaging was approved by, the, the, by Medicare, was in melanoma. Uh, we find that we can identify about 25 to 30 percent of asymptomatic melanoma metastatic disease using this. And considering that a melanoma with a, a, mel, a the mel, patient with melanoma that's metastatic uh, dies in nine months, seven to nine months, maybe ten months if I treat them, of course, or longer, uh, versus uh, dies an average of five years after metastatic melanoma is resected, you know, uh, that's, that sort of bothers me, you know, and there's 80 of us at Mayo that do this, and we sort of decided that for patients that are at high risk of relapse, basically greater than 50% that their tumor is going to come back, we pet the living bejesus out of them. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it, I, the only thing I have to tell you is I, I do not want to treat patients with metastatic disease, so I will do everything not to allow anybody to have disseminated cancer. Uh, and how we do it practically, stage one and stage two, uh, we don't, and probably because the dermatologists never send the patients to us to see them anyway. Stage three disease, uh, you know, 50% uh, relapse rates, we pet probably on average every four months. Stage four disease, we pet them every three months. And, you know, uh, patients, you know, I can't talk about this, but they do live longer, and if we are aggressive in monitoring, you know, because say, tumor comes back. We can radiofrequency ablate. We can radiate. We can do cyberknife. We can do trials on top of trials. We can do trials in cyberknife and surgery. Uh, microwave. We can do a lot of things to localize tumors to try and stop that being a nidus from metastatic disease. So I will go to any length to keep people alive for that. Question. Is the um, genetic testing for melanoma useful, like it is for the, the BRCA with breast cancer? You know, that's kind of a, the simple answer is no. I think uh, P16 mutations uh, have been sort of classically associated with increased risk in familial uh, melanoma syndromes. You know, uh, depending on the population that's, that's being tested, uh, the range, the incidence of the P16 mutations ranges from 1 to 10%. Uh, to be quite honest, I think, uh, what do you do with that information? Can you get life insurance with that information? And, you know, I think my, my personal belief is uh, if you're fair-skinned, if you've got red hair, if you burn in the sun, which is like the woman I married, you see your dermatologist once a year and don't ask any questions no matter what the mutation is. Because until we have definitive proof that these mutations have a high penetrance rate so that we, in fact, know this is going to be melanoma, and we have a therapeutic intervention that can do something about it, not just worry about it. You know, Huntington's career is a perfect example. The only genetic counseling for a disease that has 100% penetrance and 100% mortality is don't have children. You know, BRCA1, BRCA2, slightly different. You know, bilateral mastectomies, that type of, I mean, something can be done to um, mitigate the risk. In melanoma, we simply can't. So, Rather than inducing anxiety in my patients who are nervous, as it is, I say good clinical follow-up, good clinical practice. See your dermatology physician assistant every day. Life is good. <laughs> Sir. 
Uh, there's a new product for us, plaxoriasis, that works on interleukins uh, 2 and 22, I think. But what else does modulating those interleukins do as far as cancer? Well, that's a great question. I got to tell you. So, the you know the reason immunotherapy and there, people with a background like mine treat melanoma is because chemotherapy people thought has completely failed in this disease. So immunomodulation then becomes becomes something that that we should use. Uh, the journal uh, JADD, I think. Uh, I'm not sure what that stands for, but we we have a paper in it this month. Uh, talks about. Uh, an effort that we tried to do to treat topical melanoma metastasis using uh, V-beam laser with uh, imiquimod on the surface. And what, what happens is we cause a massive inflammatory reaction around the cutaneous melanoma metastases, and the melanoma clears. Um, we, we do this, uh, we have a number of things that we do for intransitive metastases, and this is uh, particularly, you guys, a common situation for melanomas of the scalp. Patients usually go three, four, five operations, and the tumor just keeps coming back and coming back and coming back. Uh, we do a lot of different things, but what we found to work the, the best is using uh, V-beam laser that the dermatologists do and sort of zap all these sites, and then we sort of slap on uh, imiquimod and actually more recently resiquimod, which is about a you know a mole per mole, about 100 times more potent IL-12-inducing agent. Uh, and we actually are getting some really good responses uh, to this. So creating an acute inflammatory milieu around the cancer seems to work. That's the whole point of ipilimumab therapy in general. Uh, but I think cutaneous mets are relatively rare conditions. Uh, ipilimumab doesn't work. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, Aldera doesn't work for everybody, uh, reziquimod uh, or imiquimod. Uh, so I think in our practice, uh, what works really well is the V-beam plus uh, the pro-inflammatory agent. The idea being we cause necrosis, spillage of danger molecules, and then we augment the body's ability to react to those danger molecules. Uh, and it, it works. But, you know, I would say I wouldn't necessarily do it outside of our context of a clinical trial. We still really don't know how to use it. That's it. Thank you very much.